let's get rolling. So my name is Megan Allman, and I am a speaker with the Life Training Institute. And I want to welcome you all to Stepping Up to Defend Life today. This, this webinar with my friend, the talented, the brilliant Seth Gruber. Um, so get ready, you guys, to be equipped during this time together. I think you guys will really enjoy it. So without uh, further ado, I want to introduce Seth Gruber to you guys. Um, he's a friend of mine and an amazing pro-life speaker and apologist, and I'm sure that you will enjoy having him. Let me bring Seth up. Hey there. Welcome, Seth. Enjoy, everyone. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning in this afternoon. Really appreciate you taking your time to join us for this uh, special event, Stepping Up to Defend Life. And as Megan said, uh, this will just be a really helpful uh, first step for you in beginning to become pro-life apologists, to be the fearful defenders of life that I know you all want to be. And this will be a little uh, sort of wet your palate for what Life Training Institute will be offering in August in a four-part, four-evening webinar with each of the speakers of Life Training Institute to really delve deeper than you've probably ever gone before and send you out further equipped to defend life. So you're all pro-life. That's why you're here, right? Your heart breaks over abortion and the millions of children killed in the name of women's rights and reproductive health care. But defending your pro-life is not, your pro-life police is not always easy, is it? Unfortunately, the vast majority of pro-life individuals who are attitudinally opposed to abortion, they identify with the pro-life label. They're oftentimes predisposed to be pro-life because of their Christian beliefs, do not feel confident in any way to engage the culture. Unfortunately, that is the description of the default pro-life Christian. And uh, hopefully that's not you. And hopefully at the end of this uh, webinar, that won't be you. But that's why it's so important. Many pro-life individuals struggle to confidently navigate their way through arguments for abortion in a way, by the way, that they would never struggle to do so if the moral question was the issue of, of infanticide or spousal abuse or slavery. Why is that? I think it's because for nearly 50 years, the pro-abortion movement has participated in a large-scale propaganda narrative to rewrite the moral intuitions of Americans alongside partisan lines rather than the moral reflex that we all kind of have that reacts to the pro-infanticide position or the pro-slavery position with revulsion, when it's the pro-choice position, even good-hearted, moral, Jesus-loving individuals who are pro-life, their moral reflexes are atrophying on the question of abortion in the way that it wouldn't if the question is slavery. And that's not necessarily your fault. That's not necessarily the fault of pro-life Christians. That's the fault of the rotten fruit of the sexual revolution and politically motivated actors who have participated in a propaganda narrative for nearly 50 years to describe one of the most heinous acts someone could imagine, the killing of a child, of an innocent baby, as reproductive health care and women's equality. So this pro-life webinar is intended to strengthen your moral reflexes to recognize the intellectual shortcomings of pro-choice arguments. You will learn, my hope is, exactly what the pro-life position is and how to articulate it with perfection. So going back to other moral issues that our moral reflexes respond to immediately and with perfection, we all understand, we all recognize, we all believe that it's wrong to kill infants. It's wrong to kill babies already born. And you'd be hard pressed to find a pro-choice individual who is pro-infanticide, except by the way, for all but three members of the Democratic Congress who vetoed and voted against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, 
proposed by ben, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, which simply just said, if you survive an abortion, can we not kill you? And can we protect your life? But the normal run-of-the-mill uh, pro-choice individual in America is not pro-infanticide. Why are we all against killing infants? Well, the, the answer is obvious, right? The answer is obvious. That's a human being. <laughs> we recognize human equality. We recognize human rights in America, right? Our country is the most unique country because it instilled the principles of natural law and this idea of the imago Dei, the image of God, into law to protect the natural rights of citizens. And those rights come from God. So we all recognize that, except when that child is in the womb, except when that human is in the womb. Suddenly, moral premises become distorted through the lens of reproductive health care, if you will. So the topic this, this afternoon is, yes, stepping up to defend life, but really it's why everyone should be pro-life. And I want you to be equipped to make a defense as to why everyone should be pro-life. The people in your life, your friends, family members, and coworkers that maybe sometimes you've been fearful to talk to as to why they should be pro-life and why that position should be self-evident and easy to defend and articulate. And this is significant because only by protecting the most defenseless members of our society can we maintain justice and equal treatment for all human beings, right? This is why Mother Teresa said that our society will be judged at how we treat our most vulnerable. You'll hear politicians talk about how the moral conscience of a nation will be judged by how it treats the least of these. That's why human equality is so important. And you cannot have human equality as long as some humans are excluded from the protections of equal treatment under the law. And the unborn child is the greatest example of an actual human being who is excluded from equal protections under the law. So everyone should be pro-life because everyone should be opposed to killing innocent human beings without proper justification, right? So now we've set the playing field, if you will. We've set the board um, in how we approach this conversation. But now we're gonna build the mental scaffolding necessary for you to engage winsomely, persuasively, and courageously on that board, on that battlefield. I'm gonna give you a very simple argument this afternoon for why everyone should be pro-life. And I encourage you, as you follow the line of my reasoning, and as you hopefully are taking notes, and you'll receive some follow-up notes, don't worry, to, to follow this line of reasoning with your friends, family members, and coworkers, and ask them to challenge you if you have misstated anything. Ask them to identify the flaws in your reasoning. And of course, I'm confident saying that because I do this full time, but I think you should be confident saying that as well because our case for the pro-life position is airtight. It has no holes in it. And you can confidently defend that airtight case while encouraging your ideological opponents, your friends, family members, and coworkers to say where you went wrong. So here's our syllogism, right? A syllogism is where you lay out your premises. And if both premises are true, valid, and correct, then the conclusion must necessarily follow. Right? This is the, the philosophical approach to reasoning, where we create very linear thinking so that we're very clear on what we're claiming and whether those premises are valid. So I'm going to offer you two premises for the pro-life syllogism. Okay? This is the pro-life mental scaffolding for your mind. And if you get this right, then you can begin plugging in all of the different aspects of the abortion issue and all of the different arguments you might hear into that mental scaffolding. Meaning you don't have to 
go memorize every pro-life pro-choice argument and the pro-life response so that you can remember what the pro-life response is that's that's helpful for sure but if you get the pro-life mental scaffolding right then you will respond with that type of trained moral reflex on abortion in the same way that you would on any other moral question so here's our syllogism folks premise one is it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings without proper justification. And everyone agrees with that, right? No one's gonna say, yeah, um, actually, these innocent human beings over here, we should definitely kill them without any form of justification. Now I add without proper justification because some people might bring up a critique to pro-lifers about maybe just war theory or other moral dilemmas where you might be forced to make a decision that does intentionally harm an innocent human being because the alternative might be someone else you love gets harmed. So we add that just to protect ourselves in the sense that this is what the pro-life position is. It's not that all killing is always wrong or that, all, or that there's no situation in which killing might be justified, but that intentionally killing innocent human beings without proper justification is always wrong. Okay, no one's going to disagree with you on that. That's our premise one. Premise two is abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Now, obviously, this is the premise that the partisans of abortion are going to attack you on because they have to. If they don't and they accept the, the valid nature of that uh, claim of that premise, then they'd be forced to accept the conclusion. And what is the conclusion? Abortion is always wrong. Okay. So there um, are three questions that we need to ask and answer to defend premise two, right? I'm trying to lay this out in just the most succinct, linear way so that you can build that scaffolding in your mind and know exactly how to respond to pro-choice arguments. We say abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Well, there's three questions we would have to defend or we would have to answer for premise two to be true, valid, and correct. The first question would be, is the unborn a human being, right? Because I said abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. The second question would be, does abortion intentionally kill a human being? Because I said it intentionally kills an innocent human being. And the third question would be, is, is abortion ever justified? Because I said it kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Is there any circumstance in where abortion might be justified? So we need to answer those three questions to adequately defend premise two. So I'm gonna show you how we can adequately defend and answer those three questions um, in an airtight way so that premise two is indefeatable. It's self-evident, it has to be true, and therefore the conclusion has to be true that abortion is always wrong, and there we have our airtight pro-life argument, okay? So let's start with that first question. Is the unborn a human being? Well, the unborn is a human being because the science of embryology says it's a human being, not because I say it's a human being. The unborn child is a human being because that is the biological objective reality, right? It's not her body, her choice. It's a distinct, separate human being. So what does the science of embryology teach us? Simply this, that from the moment of conception, when egg and sperm meet and egg and sperm die, a new human being comes into existence. And from that moment, there is a distinct living and whole human being. Let's run through those terms. What's distinct mean? Well, distinct means separate, right? You know what that means. Distinct means different, unique, right? You're a distinct, unique individual. I'm not you and you're not me. So when pro-choice activists say her body, her choice, the reality of science should make that claim utterly ludicrous, borderline insane, 
to suggest that the separate ind distinct individual in her body is actually just part of her body. Okay, clearly that's not true because pregnant women don't have 20 fingers and 20 toes. They don't have two brains. They don't have two separate DNA codes existing simultaneously. The mother and the child could potentially have two different blood types. Oh, and if the mother's pregnant with a boy, uh-oh, uh do pregnant women have male genitalia? <laughs> Right, of course not. So the body in her body is not her body because the unborn child is a distinct human being. Secondly, the science of embryology teaches us that the unborn child is a living human being. This again should be self-evident because the unborn child meets all of the requirements of a living thing that you and I all learned in high school biology, for goodness sake, okay? And the unborn child directs their own internal growth from within, meaning there is no outside builder, meaning that the unborn child is not like a developed thing. It's not like a sports car that gets assembled on an assembly line and you can watch each part be added until the final piece is added and now you have a Corvette. Human development is not like that. It's not like the final piece of human development develops and now, okay, now there is a human being. No, the science of embryology teaches that from the moment of conception, there's a living human being who's directing their own internal growth from within, apart from the desires or will of their parents, right? I have a two and a half year old, my wife is pregnant now. Here's something that never happens. My wife never wakes me up in the middle of the night shaking me saying, Seth, wake up, wake up. Come, come remind our baby to grow. We forgot to ask our baby to grow. We have to ask them to. We need to remind baby to grow. It's so silly, right? Because unborn children develop themselves independent of the wishes of their mother or father. So they're living. Lastly, the science of embryology teaches us that the unborn child is whole, not a hole in the ground, W-H-O-L-E. What does it mean to be a whole human being? It means that you have everything you need at the moment of conception to realize your full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. So the unborn child does not uh, develop itself to a, a certain uh, level of development where now it's recognized as a whole member of the human species because clearly we're all going through different degrees of development, aren't we? Some of you are older than me, which means you're more developed than I am. But that doesn't mean that you have a greater right to life. It doesn't mean that you have a higher degree of personhood than I do. So the unborn child is a whole human being from the moment of conception. This is, by the way, in the same way that, you know, a, uh, at me at 28 years old, have everything I need to realize my full growth and development as a 40-year-old. But I haven't realized a 40-year-old's level of development. And by the way, they, they actually say that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s, uh, which my wife was very encouraged to find out recently. She's, she's really holding out hope for me. <laughs> so I have not realized my full level of development. There are aspects of my mental development I haven't realized. But what pro-choice individual would say, well, Seth, you're not really a whole human being. Well, they might say that because that's how much they hate me, right? But they, they know that that's not true. Um, we could say the same thing about toddlers, right? No one would say that a one or two-year-old who, who does, is vastly lacking in, in huge different uh, you know, categories of development than you and I, that they're not persons or they're not a whole human being simply because they haven't realized the same level of development you and I have. Okay, that's what I mean when I say the unborn child is a whole human being from the moment of conception. It is in virtue of being a human being to realize that level of development at a later stage. We just all happen to find ourselves at a different tick mark on that continuum of human development. 
So that's what it means to be a, a distinct, a living, and a whole human being. And this is not because pro-lifers say this is true. This is because this is what the science of embryology teaches us. Dr. Jeremy Leguin, just to cite one professor of genetics at the University of Descartes, says that after fertilization or conception has taken place, a new human being has come into being. And he actually goes on to say that it's no longer a matter of taste or opinion, meaning your pro-choice opinion doesn't really, I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you disagree. This is what the objective science teaches us. He says, it is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception, okay? So is the unborn a human being? That was the first question we had to answer to defend premise two, which was that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. The answer of course is yes. What's the second question? Does abortion intentionally kill, okay? Abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. If you look at abortion imagery, there's no other rational conclusion to come away with, but that that child was intentionally killed. Abortions are not like miscarriages, are they? Miscarriages by their very definition are what? Accidental. <laughs> Abortion by its very definition is not accidental. Women don't just find themselves at an abortion clinic, unless in the rare circumstances they've somehow been drugged or dragged into the abortion clinic, which happens and that's atrocious. But for the most part, women don't find themselves in abortion clinics. You have to schedule your appointment. You have to show up. Then you either take an abortion pill to starve your baby to death, or you have to have your cervix forcibly dilated if your baby is significantly developed. And then, and that can take hours. And then the child has to be chopped up into little pieces or suctioned through a vacuum tube. None of this is accidental because abortion is intentional. But again, not because pro-lifers say so, but because the people who kill babies say that abortion is obviously intentional. So yes, abortion intentionally kills. For example, Warren Hearn, right? Warren Hearn, by the way, killed thousands of babies. And he wrote the leading textbook training future abortionists on how to kill babies, right? It's called abortion practice. And he said in his book, he said, we have reached the point in this particular technology the technology of killing babies, where there is no possibility of denial of an act of destruction by the operator. He says that it is before one's eyes and that the sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. Yeah, that's a grisly description because abortion is intentional. Camille Paglia, a longtime pro-choice professor and author, a professor at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, wrote a 2008 uh, salon.com article where she's kind of said this quiet part out loud. She said, hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. And then she goes on to say that liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. So Yes, abortion is intentional because the people who defend the killing of babies or who participate in the killing of babies say that it's intentional. And if you've seen abortion imagery, you know this to be true. And I would encourage those of you who are going to defend life in the public square with your friends, family members, and coworkers to download the 55 second video clip called This Is Abortion, either from our website or on YouTube, and keep that on your phone. Either keep the link or keep a file of it on your phone. And don't go around shoving it in people's faces, gratuitously offending people and calling them baby killers. Nobody's for that. Simply ask those in your life who are pro-choice, would you be okay with me showing you what your 
choice, the, the choice that you support looks like, right? It's easy to be pro-choice when you never have to look at what that choice looks like. And that's a valuable tool and it, and it proves the claim that abortion is intentional. So premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Is it a human being? Obviously we went through that. Does abortion intentionally kill? Yes, but not because we say so, but because the, our opponents say so. And is abortion ever justified, okay? And this is the greatest battlefield in the abortion wars because most pro-choice individuals are going to admit if pressed that the unborn is biologically human. Most of them are going to admit if pressed and they have a shred of intellectual honesty that abortion intentionally kills a human, okay? But they're going to argue that that killing is justified. And they're gonna argue that it's either justified medically, okay? Or they're gonna argue that it's justified morally. Or they're gonna argue that it's justified medically and morally, okay? So we have to answer both of those questions to defend the premise that abortion is wrong and intentionally kills innocent human beings without proper justification, okay? So let's start with medically. Is abortion ever justified medically? This is important because this has become one of the greatest lies and myths created and promulgated by the pro-abortion movement and their political and media serviles than nearly any other lie since the sexual revolution. The lie is that Sometimes you need abortion to save the mother's life. And so that enables them to turn around and look at you as pro-lifers and go, you sick pro-lifers, you're disgusting. I thought you were pro-life and yet you're going to force women to have babies and give birth even though that pregnancy is gonna take their life. Wow, I knew it, I knew you were a fake pro-lifer. <laughs> I mean, that, that lie is what enables them to make that accusation of pro-lifers, but it's not true. The claim that abortion is sometimes needed to save the mother's life is not true and it's become the, one of the biggest lies, lies in the abortion debate. So what circumstance could one argue that abortion might be medically necessary to save mom's life? Well, thankfully, because of medical advancements, we're almost always able to save the life of both mother and child. That's really good news. If you're a woman living in America in 2020 and you get pregnant, you have the lowest amount of concern for losing your life than any other woman at any other time in world history. <laughs> that is good news. We're almost always able to save the life of both mother and child, even in high-risk pregnancies. But sometimes, sometimes we can't save um, both lives. The, but the only circumstance that's really left where we know beforehand that we can't say, because there's some circumstances where, where maybe we're not sure, right? There could be cases of cesarean cancer or something like that where we're not sure if we can save both lives. But there's really only one circumstance left where we know beforehand that we cannot save both lives, at least yet. And that's called an ectopic pregnancy, right? If you're not familiar with this, an ectopic pregnancy is when rather than traveling down the entire length of the fallopian tube and implanting in the uterine wall, the unborn child, that new zygote, that new individual human being implants in the fallopian tube. So after implantation, that baby begins to grow. As the baby begins to grow, it will expand and stretch the fallopian tube and left untreated, what happens? The fallopian tube bursts, mom and baby die. Okay, unfortunately, in an ectopic pregnancy, we can't save the life of both mother and child. But even the procedure that is performed to remove the baby to save mom's life is not called an abortion. Why? Because abortion is the intentional killing of the unborn child. You either perform a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy, 
you either create a small incision in the fallopian tube and remove baby, which leads to baby's death, or you remove one of mom's two fallopian tubes. So mom, mom lives, baby dies. But if you do nothing, how many lives do you lose? You lose two. So it's better to act to save one life than refuse to act and lose two lives. But notice that's not an abortion. So you can't even argue in that circumstance, the only circumstance left where we know for sure beforehand that we can't save both lives. You can't even say that that's an abortion and therefore medically necessary because it's not an abortion, right? Because it doesn't fit the definition of abortion, the intentional killing of the unborn child. So the death of the baby in an ectopic pregnancy is a foreseen but unintended consequence. We don't intend the death of the baby. Anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex will tell you that the intent in that circumstance is to save the life of the mother, okay? Now, there was a, there was a declaration going around late last year and it's still being signed by uh, medical professionals around the world called the Dublin Declaration. You can look this up, the Dublin Declaration. It currently has over 1,000 signatures by OBGYNs, nurses, midwives, doctors, medical professionals, and neonatologists all agreeing to the statement that abortion is never medically necessary to save mom's life and that you can treat the underlying pathology of the risk to the mother's life without performing an abortion, which intentionally kills the child. And there's been other pro-life OBGYN groups that have said the same thing. So abortion is never medically necessary to save mom's life. So is abortion ever justified medically? No. Okay, now, is abortion ever justified morally? Morally, ready? This, now we've culminated, right? We've now reached the peak of the mountain. This is the, the, the greatest debate in the abortion debate, is whether women have the moral right to an abortion. Do, does the mother's moral right to her bodily autonomy trump any, any moral right that the child might have to, you know, that first and most important of all rights, the right to life. Obviously, their argument is always going to be that the mother has a moral right to abortion or else you're not even pro-choice if you don't agree with that. That is their claim. So this is, this is important now. How do pro-choicers attempt to argue that abortion is morally justified? What, what, are, what are their arguments? They can't make the medical argument. They can't say it's not a human. They can't say abortion doesn't intentionally kill unborn humans. So they're left with arguing that abortion is a moral right. They are going to argue in the long line of historical bigotry, finding its roots in the Democratic Party, by the way, that only persons have rights and the unborn is not a person because they're different from us in so many ways. <laughs> and that should creep all of us out. That should scare us what they're saying. Sometimes we as pro-lifers, we, we rush immediately to try to disprove any single claim that a pro-choice individual might make without forgetting to realize the broader framework and historical context in which that comment is being made. When pro-choicers say mothers have a moral right to an abortion because the unborn child is not a person and only persons have rights, folks, they are saying the same thing that Nazis and racists said, which is that not all humans are persons. Not all humans are persons. So the unborn child is an example of a human non-person, just like racists believe that blacks were human non-persons, just like Nazis believe that Jews were human non-persons. This worldview should have been thrown into the ideological trash heap of history decades ago. And yet it has found its home in the most bigoted political party in America, the Democratic Party, which has always believed that some humans are not persons. They believe that about black people. Now they believe that about unborn children. Okay, so they're making the same claims that bigots have made for centuries. Now, how are they going to argue? What differences are they going to point to 
to back up their claim that the unborn is an example of a human non-person, okay? They're going to point to four differences, ready? Four differences between the human in the womb and the humans outside the womb. And they're going to argue that those differences between unborn humans and born humans are sufficient or are, 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 are credible enough or important enough to deny the right to life to the human in the womb because those differences are such that they believe the human in the womb is not a person. Does that make sense? Here are the four differences. The four differences are size, level of development, environment, and dependency. Just try to remember the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, okay? I, it's hard, this is a hard concept for me. I live in Southern California. I can't even spell the word snow. But, uh, but uh, maybe you live somewhere where there's snow. Sled. So yes, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. But newborn children are smaller than toddlers, and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. And if you're under six foot three, you're smaller than me. But does that mean I have a greater degree of personhood or right to life? Of course not. Men are generally larger than women. Will your pro-choice friend appreciate you suggesting that men generally have more rights than women because they're larger. <laughs> that one's not going to go over very well in the, the myth of the pro-choice feminist. So size does not determine our worth, our personhood, or our right to life. What about level of development? Yes, it's true. The unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, but newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Your children are less developed than you, and your parents are more developed than you. We all begin our human development at the moment of conception, and we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But the pro-choice individual will never explain why a certain degree of development is value giving in the first place. They just assume that the birth canal, once you escape out of the birth canal, your level of development at that point grants you personhood. But why should we accept that premise in the first place? because we all differ according to our level of development. So what is it about the prenatal human whose human development is not sufficient enough for the pro-choicer to grant them personhood? There is no good answer to that question. It's completely arbitrary. They do that because they have to attempt to hold together the pieces of their worldview so that they can accept the conclusion that abortion is female empowerment. So size and level of development have no relation to personhood. What about environment or location? Obviously, the unborn child is in a different location and environment, right? It's called the womb. It's called the uterus. By the way, we're all former womb dwellers. We all came from wombs, and luckily, our mothers made the right choice. But the birth canal doesn't confer personhood, right? Magical personhood conferring fairy dust is not sprinkled on babies during the six-inch journey through the birth canal. So where one is has no bearing on who one is. Unfortunately, the womb, that location, that environment has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves anywhere in the world today in 2020. You're more likely of being murdered in a womb as a human being than residing in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slumber country. The womb has indeed become the most dangerous place for human beings to reside. But where one is has no bearing on who one is. Some of you uh, maybe in different states than me right now, certainly in different cities. Hundreds of miles separate us right now.
but obviously we're still persons with rights despite the fact that we're not in the same location. So there's nothing about the six inch journey through the birth canal that is meaningful or value giving such that the unborn child is not a person before that journey and is immediately a person after that journey. And by the way, you can ask your pro-choice friends what they think about partial birth abortion. That would be a great strategy to expose the moral bankruptcy of suggesting that location is relevant to personhood. Just ask them, hey, um, you know, Bill Clinton, you know how he vetoed the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act? Um, you know, luckily later Bush signed it, but you know, when a baby's 75% weight delivered out of the birth canal and its legs are flailing around, it's, it's a uh, buttocks is completely delivered, but it has its shoulder and head inside the birth canal. Let me ask you, pro-choice, would you be okay with uh, re-legalizing partial birth abortion? What do you think? You know, I mean, all you do is you just insert scissors in the back of the baby's neck and you, you, you open the scissors to create a big gaping bloody cavity in the back of their neck. And then you just, you just suck, you put a suction catheter machine and you suck the brain out and collapse the cavity of the head and pull the baby out, right? Reproductive health care, right? Women's empowerment, feminism. Because the baby wasn't completely out of the way of the birth canal. <laughs> yeah, any pro-choice individual should be cringing at that point because where one is has no bearing on who one is. So size, level of development, environment or location and dependency. Okay, now, like I said, their argument for the moral right to abortion is the greatest argument for abortion. But of the four differences that they argue are meaningful between the unborn child and the infant, dependency is the greatest one of those four. Size, level of development, environment and dependency. Dependency is the greatest one of, of all of those. It's the most frequently used and it's the most problematic, and it, it really destroys human equality and human rights. They argue that because the baby's dependent on the mother, then you know what, it's her property. Just like black people were the property of white people, it's, it's her body, it's her choice. Because the baby's dependent on the mother, then women should not be coerced or forced into rendering their support to the dependency of their child. Now, of course, if, if you're following the line of reasoning here in the pro-life argument, you might be thinking right now, well, what, what about when the baby is not dependent on the mother and can be delivered and survive outside the womb? Good question. I'm glad you thought of that. What about that? This is the concept of viability, right? When the baby is viable, it can survive outside the womb, which means it's not dependent on the mother for its life. That's a great question because the viability standard continues to change all the time, doesn't it? President Trump in his State of the Union address in January or February highlighted baby Ellie and her mother. And baby Ellie was born at 22 weeks. And now, a few weeks ago, a baby by the name of baby Jamarius was born at 21 weeks and zero days, making him the youngest surviving preemie ever in the entire world. And he won't, we, he went home healthy and thriving. But there are stories in medical journals and pro-life blogs and news sources all across the world where mothers have delivered babies at 22 weeks, 23 weeks, 24 weeks, and they're holding their baby, asking the hospital staff, come true, please help me save my baby. And they look at her and they don't do anything. Why? They, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, your baby is not viable. And my understanding of viability is 24 weeks. And so your child is screwed. Uh, so much for my Hippocratic oath. I, this literally happens all around the world. But now a baby at 21 weeks and zero days was delivered and survived and was going home healthy. So viability is completely tangible and it's used by politically motivated pro-choice activists to justify their position. 
So the question for the pro-choice individual who argues from dependency is simply this, do human rights and personhood which should be objective concepts, constantly shift and change and get redefined based on medical advancements that constantly shift and change, which make us, which enable us to move viability to earlier and earlier stages. How is your personhood an actual right to life dependent on external medical advancements? So our human rights and our personhood have nothing to do with our dependency on someone or something else. Furthermore, you could ask your pro-choice friend, um, what happens to a one-year-old, an infant, if you leave them in the crib and do nothing? Oh, yeah, they die. So they're still dependent on you. And then, of course, people are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, and life support. But no pro-choice individual thinks it's okay to kill that class of human beings simply because they're dependent. So dependency has no bearing on personhood or right to life. Rather, those who are the more dependent and more reliant on us to live are the more deserving of our help. That is what a just society does. That is how a just society treats its most vulnerable. It doesn't use their dependency on others as an argument to justify killing them. That's atrocious, disgusting, and an ideology that should have been thrown into the ash heap of history. So size, level of development, environment, and dependency are the four differences that pro-aborts use to argue that the unborn child is an example of a human non-person, okay? And we've just shown you how you can debug the moral bankruptcy of that suggestion. So here is what we argue, that the, any argument offered in defense of killing the unborn could adequately be used to justify killing any born person because the differences that they use to argue that the unborn is a human non-person are ultimately arbitrary and could be equally used to justify killing anyone else. So that is the mental scaffolding, right, of the pro-life position and how you respond to pro-choice arguments from a 30,000 foot view. But I want to give you one quick tactic before we wrap up on how you can specifically respond to pro-choice arguments. So it doesn't really matter which one it is. You hear any pro-choice argument and I'm going to give you this abortion BS filter is what I call it. Okay. You can throw pro-abortion arguments into this filter to strip it of its fallacies and bigotry and expose it for what it's really saying. And this tactic is called trot out the toddler. All you do is you take the pro-choice argument and you replace the, the unborn child with a toddler and repeat the question back to your pro-choice friend. So they say, well, Seth, you know, we, women have the right to kill babies in abortion because that's a privacy concern. How dare you intrude in that, those private family matters? Only the mother and her doctor should make that decision or the mother and the boyfriend or husband. Very well, we simply ask the question, should parents be able to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? See, so I've just made a privacy argument for killing toddlers. Same argument, I've just replaced the unborn child with a toddler. You can do this with almost literally every pro-abortion argument. It's the abortion BS filter, okay? And it exposes that they're assuming the unborn is not human, but they haven't offered an argument for the unborn not being a human. So you can use that abortion BS filter to engage with nearly any pro-abortion argument, okay? So at the end of the day, all these differences they talk about between unborn people and born people, such that we can kill unborn people, at the end of the day, there is no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being we once were and the adult that we are today that would justify killing us at that earlier stage. So when you pass your family and your friends and your coworkers, ask yourself the question, what do we have in common? What do we share? We're different skin colors and genders. We're different religions. We're different heights. We have different capacities. We have different talents. We have different degrees of dependency. What do we have in common? The only answer is we have a human nature in common. 
So there's nothing that you could cite to justify killing the unborn human that would not apply to many born humans as well because we share a common human nature. Abortion is always wrong because it intentionally kills innocent human beings without proper justification. And I've shown you how you can defend the premise that the unborn child is human, that abortion intentionally kills the unborn human, and that there is no justification medically or morally to kill the unborn child. So abortion is not about women's rights. It's not about feminism. It's not about reproductive health care. It's not about equality. That is not about women's equality with men. It's about human equality. Are all humans equal in value? Or are some less valuable and can be justifiably killed? Listen, friend, you as a pro-life individual are the equality advocate. The pro-life position is the position of equality. The pro-choice position is the position of bigotry. It's the position that, that it's the anti-human equality position, right? So abortion is always wrong because it is a choice, but it is a choice for the death of an innocent human being who differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another, but is still a distinct living and whole human being with equal rights. That's your pro-life argument. That's your pro-life scaffolding of the mind that will enable you to engage with nearly any pro-abortion argument in our very politically, morally, and spiritually divided culture. Thank you so much. Megan. Awesome job, Seth. Thank you guys. I'm so happy you're still with us. And at this point in time, I know that uh, Seth is going to field some questions. I see one that just popped up in the Q&A box. Um, so Seth, I'm going to kind of be the na uh, narrator here. I'll give you these questions and then we'll move along. And um, I have a few that I could ask too. So we can keep on moving for the next few minutes. From Samantha, there's been an increase in stories about women who terminated their child after a life-limiting diagnosis. Of course, any human with an ailment deserves to pass away with dignity or be treated through medical intervention. This is talking about those late-term diagnoses that um, may be terminal or where, the, where we know the baby's going to be born and may suffer after birth. What do we do? Yeah. How do we respond lovingly to that? You're right, Samantha. We actually have been seeing a, a big increase in stories recently. And I've covered some of these in my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber, about mainstream leftist media news outlets um, covering these stories of, of women who have obtained abortions for eugenics reasons, folks, right? For, for, for disability of the child or some type of ailment of the child. And it's pitched as compassionate, right? Uh, earlier in, in my podcast, I covered a little documentary that I believe Vice Media did, which is, I mean, if you know anything about Vice, it's a real garbage heap of a production company. I do, if you have children, do not let them explore this website until they're equipped with a Christian worldview. I mean, disgusting stuff, full-on bigotry, full-on eugenics. I mean, this kind of stuff would have made the American Eugenics Society incredibly proud to have ushered their eugenics into 2020. But they covered the story of a handful of families from Georgia. You guys remember 2019 when Georgia passed that, heart, that heartbeat bill, um, where, where it would have banned abortion when there was a detectable heartbeat at six weeks. Obviously, the heartbeat starts at 21 days, but at a detectable heartbeat. Of course, what, ha what happens every time a state passes pro-life legislation? A lawsuit from the ACLU, which is the greatest legal enemy of unborn children. So they covered the story of a handful of families and they're all sitting in the living room together. I mean, this is like, this is like crazy 1984 Orwellian language. I mean, I felt like I was living in a fantasy. The type of language they used to describe the reasons why they obtained their abortions were atrocious. And if you actually want to look up this little YouTube film series by Vice, it was called, I think it was called What It's Like to Get a Second Trimester Abortion. What It's Like to Get a Second Trimester Abortion. Why? Because assuming the passage of the bill in Georgia, 
families wouldn't have been able to get a second trimester abortion in Georgia. So they tell their stories about why they got their abortion. And what was the thing in common with all of them folks? They all got their abortion for eugenics reasons. And, and because my child wasn't going to be sustainable with life. They didn't have a sustainable, uh, they were gonna have a sustainable life. It wasn't viable. They weren't going to survive very long. They would have died. Their life would have been very painful. This is all the type of language they use. Anything from Down syndrome to one of the trisomy diagnoses, right? To missing limbs. It was all, it was all focused on, we are compassionate parents actually. We're actually really compassionate because we don't want to give our child such a painful life, despite the fact, or completely ignoring the fact as we all know, that for example, Down syndrome children and adults report some of the highest levels of happiness in their life. No, that, none of that matters. None of that matters. We just need to kill them all. You remember Iceland last year celebrated that they had eradicated Down syndrome. Did they eradicate Down syndrome? Oh, was there some vaccine they came up with? No, they just kill them all in the womb. So one or two babies in Iceland are born each year with Down syndrome. They just murder them all. And then they celebrate to the world that they've eradicated Down syndrome. So Samantha's right. This has become increasingly common right now. It's disgusting. Abortion is modern day eugenics. And we should throw these eugenics ideas into the ash heap of history, just like we should with racism, just like we should with Margaret Sanger, just like we should with all of these people who believe that some humans are not persons. Now you can take this argument, throw it through the abortion BS filter, and simply ask your pro-choice friend, hey, just, just a quick question. Assuming that we didn't have access to the medical technology to diagnose these disorders in the womb so that women didn't find out about these disorders until the baby was born, quick question for you. Would you support policies that would legalize the decision of parents to arrange the decapitation of their infants who have trisomy 18? Just, just wondering, what's their answer gonna be, folks? It's, it's gonna be no. Whoa, 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 pro-lifer. Don't, I mean, come on, bro, that's sick. Why? The only difference is six inches. It's just, they just move six inches. So either magical personhood conferring fairy dust from the tooth fairy's cousin is sprinkled on the baby during the six inch journey, or six inches is not a relevant factor in the humanity and personhood of individuals. And so stumping for the killing of prenatal humans with diagnoses is just as evil as stumping for the slaughter of born human beings with disorders. So that's kind of how we can think through that. One, it's eugenics. Two, if it's adequately morally applied, that it destroys human equality, results in savage inequality, and justifies killing any born person who has ailments as well. And guys, newsflash, that's, so, that's where some people want to take these ideas. The good news is, is that some pro-choice individuals, most of them in your life who are pro-choice by default because they've been indoctrinated by the media but have never thought deeply about their position, will reject the idea of killing born human beings for eugenics reasons. But there are some people, folks, who they, they understand this worldview and they want to stretch it and apply it to the elimination of all unfit individuals, whether unborn or born. So I hope that helps. Yeah, good. I think that's a great answer, Seth. Um, if I'm understanding correctly, kind of the way you presented it, it was almost when you talked about the trot out the toddler thing, you could almost take it there because you used an infant as an example. So I was kind of filtering back through some of the, the teaching that you gave us um, and these tools. Um, well, um, guys, if you have questions, go ahead and submit them. But um, Seth, I know for a fact, because I work with you, that you speak to a number of student groups and you speak to groups where there are a number of people who disagree with you. And I wondered if you can just kind of talk about the way this really plays out. Because I feel like most of the answers we've got in the beginning are with people who are kind of in the middle, like they're willing to step up, um, but it's a little nerve wracking to step into that arena sometimes. So I'm wondering if you can just give some conversation tips and maybe a success story um, that, that kind of you keep with you all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of relational and conversational strategies, 
that take your pro-life conversations to the next step. Just ask good questions. Just engage in the Socratic method of asking good questions. That's all I'd really have to say to you. If you guys develop this pro-life mental scaffolding, again, if you develop that scaffolding, you will begin to develop the moral reflexes that I think are atrophying on abortion, unlike any other moral issue. And while you might not feel like you'll be ready, once you're in those conversations and you've developed that pro-life scaffolding, you probably will. It is a moral reflex. You will recognize what is wrong with those arguments, primarily by how those arguments would be accepted if applied to the killing of a born individual, right? Does that make sense? So, so once you have that, you'll be pretty solid. But what about relational or conversational tools to apply that scaffolding? one-on-one. -on -one. You just ask good questions, right? Asking questions to others humanizes the other person. It shows that you care because you're asking honest questions about them. And guess what? Everyone likes to talk about themselves. And it also decreases the emotional tension that is often present in the conversation because now your friend is realizing that you're not attempting to go on a soapbox tirade of your position, but rather you're, you're really curious about what they believe, right? So that brings the tension down. Um, it enables for a more productive conversation because more productive conversations happen when there's less tension, when it just feels like a conversation rather than a heated debate, even though I kind of like heated debates, but most people get nervous in those. Um, and then when they begin to give you, <coughs> excuse me, answers to the questions you ask, <coughs> just ask them why they believe that, excuse me, just ask them, how did you come to believe that if a, if a mother conceives a baby after being raped, that she should have the right to kill that baby, but maybe not in the third trimester because she wants to fit into her prom dress? <clears throat> Talk to me about why you, you think that that abortion should be allowed, but, but maybe not this one. And you just start asking the question why they believe what they believe. And most pro-choice individuals don't know exactly why they believe what they believe. They're just repeating pro-choice tropes that they've been trained to by the mainstream media. So that's kind of how you can get engage a little bit relationally. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. 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 I know. And I know, I mean, the schools I've been in just by speaking about it in the way that we do, which is without fear and with confidence and with compassion, it almost opens the door for these conversations. They want to talk to you when you come to the school or when you come to the group. That's um, right. And Megan, I also just saw a question from Raylene that was actually oh. in the chat box. Okay. Um, she said, what responses would you give about the societal issues the pro-choice uh, individual uses, like welfare, bad families, too young to be a mother, unsupported by the father, et cetera. So Raylene, all of these questions or objections by the pro-choice individual can be summarized into this statement. Your response can be summarized into this statement. Hardship does not justify homicide. That's it. Hardship does not justify homicide. And we can acknowledge the difficulties that many families or single mothers will find themselves in. We can acknowledge all of that. And now, now, now it might drift into a conversation in how you view government, right? Because the liberal will, will, will stump for big government solutions by increasing taxes to care for the individual, even though the people in the bureaucracy in DC don't really have any emotional vested interest in caring for the lives of individuals in local cities, but they're gonna stump for that solution. Generally, right, conservatives are going are gonna to stop for the local intervention of, of either religious individuals or just, just humans, <laughs> non-religious individuals who care about their local communities, who have a more vested interest in creating a better, safer community and caring for the needs of those in their cities and communities. <clears throat> so it, it, it often, this, this objection will often drift into how you view government. 
But, but putting that aside, we can acknowledge the difficulty, difficult situations that people are in. But again, you can throw all of these um, difficulties that people use as a justification for abortion. That's ultimately what you're saying. Because when people say, oh, the welfare is going to be too young to have a child. What if the, it's a bad family and the, the child gets beaten by the father and the father's a degenerate um, or the father doesn't pay anything? Ultimately, what they're saying is these difficulties, um, they're really real. And to be avoided, abortion should be a solution and an option. So ultimately, you can still throw these into the abortion BS filter and trot out the toddler by just asking them if they would accept the legalization of the killing of infants, who, by the way, are just seconds, seconds difference from the unborn child that they support killing. It's just six, sec six seconds and six inches. That's the only difference. Would you support killing the infant if right after giving birth, the mother got a call from the father who wasn't there and says, I'm sleeping with another woman, I'm leaving you and I'm not paying alimony. Should we be able to kill the infant because now it's in a bad familial environment? Does hardship justify homicide? Their answer is always gonna be no. So the issue never becomes about these issues. It becomes about human equality. It becomes, do you believe all humans are persons? So I hope that helps. That was such, a, such an important distinction because you're not denying that these are hard things, but you're, you gotta, you gotta zero in on what's really at stake here. Um, that's, that's awesome. Well done, Seth. Um, well, with respect to everyone's time, I'm going to keep you on here, Seth, but I am going to talk about one special opportunity before we, we close out today. Um, thank you for being with us. And um, Seth is actually going to be joining the rest of the Life Training Institute speaking team in just a couple of weeks. In fact, August 10th through 13th for a four evening webinar called 2020 Vision, How to Survive Being Pro-Life on or off campus in a cancel culture. Um, and in that webinar, we're gonna tackle four different areas of this whole debate. So you will go deeper and broader. Um, if you liked what you heard today, then you need to jump on over there. Uh, the first night you'll hear from president and founder of LTI, Scott Klusendorf, in his presentation, Vision of the Battlefield, Recognizing Bad Ways People Argue for Abortion. You'll hear from Seth on Tuesday night, August 11th, as he takes on the, the hurdles that we that we overcome in, in conversations about abortion in his presentation, spotting moral relativism in, an, in abortion debates and calling its bluff. Um, on Wednesday night, you'll hear from yours truly, Megan, um, as I kind of connect the importance of the abortion debate to the gospel itself. We're going to talk about a case for the resurrection and why that changes the way we see everything else. Um, and finally, Janique Stewart, uh, one of our other speaking team members, will bring it all down to the practical stuff on Thursday in her presentation, uh, the, A Vision of the Path Ahead, How to Be Pro-Life, a Pro-Life Ambassador on Campus in a Cancel Culture. You guys, for having registered for this event today, will receive a $5 off coupon um, if you register for that event. The full price of registration is $35, so you guys are getting a break on that. Um, and we hope that you will jump over and join us. Uh, Seth did say he would send some notes out to you guys. So we'll make sure that we get that together and maybe he could throw in a few resources for you as well um, as you continue your studies and continue uh, stepping up to defend life. Thank and you to so get that $5 off, by the way, guys, you just have to enter yes. the code SETH in all caps, S-E-T-H, my name. Enter that code SETH in all caps in the follow-up email that you'll receive to this webinar and you'll get the $5 off for the four evening special uh, for 30 bucks for the Life Training Institute uh, 2020 vision, how to be pro-life in a cancel 
culture. So we really hope to see you over there. Join us there uh, August 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th to hear from the Life Training Institute elite team of prologue speakers and, uh, and uh, speaking not so humbly, uh, but you'll hear, some, you'll hear the rest of our team um, that approaches this issue in their own unique ways that are often so much more valuable than even my way. So please sign up for that, share that as well with uh, any individuals in your church, homeschool families, um, Christian educators, pastors, youth pastors, um, as this will launch us into the fall semester and make a whole variety of pro-life presentations available to schools and churches in a virtual platform. As many of these schools and churches, particularly in California, will feel comfortable um, engaging in large gatherings. So this is our digital solution to continue engaging in the pro-life battlefield. Awesome. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for everyone for attending and we hope to see you in a couple weeks.